Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Gurusarthwara Farthu nu Fundanerthu Thorwigi thik Thursadrotin Girl Sarthwara Vidradravari. What exactly is the difference between a prayer and any other kind of magical incantation? Do you consider a prayer to be a magical incantation? Is there some difference in the fact that when praying, one should be addressing the divine directly? Or can a prayer be any invocation of divine power at all? Can gods pray to each other? And to what degree does your own worldview influence the answer to these questions? In a Norse context, the scribes who recorded the myths that survived into modern times recorded very little about the actual ritual practice of Norse religion. There is some evidence that certain mythic stories were probably ritually reenacted, regular feasts and sacrifices certainly occurred, and some of the sagas do include details here and there about ancient pagan practices, but those that do tend to have been written during the Christian period, so it's hard to tell how much is exaggerated or possibly even fabricated. So, when we find a piece of evidence pointing to the way Norse religion actually played a role in the lives of real people— it's nothing short of a historical treasure. And if it calls upon deity for intervention into some aspect of real life, we can think of it as good enough to be called a prayer, even if it takes a different form than what we might be used to. Through that lens, the words I recited in Old Norse to begin this episode comprise an actual attested prayer invoking the god Thor. But before we dig into what it means, let's talk about who Thor is. Thor is usually referred to as the Norse god of thunder, but in reality, Norse religion doesn't really have gods of things in that sense. There are usually a few different characters among the gods who overlap in their association with any given concept. For example, Odin and Tyr are both associated with war, and there are many characters associated with fertility, including Thor. And honestly, we could consider Thor a god of the sea just as much as he is a god of anything else, as we'll get to in a little bit. We could also call him the god of wading in rivers. Every day he wades two rivers on his way to hold counsel with the other gods. There's a story where Loki is in big trouble and he's hiding from the other gods in the form of a fish and Thor goes after him by wading through the river. And there's yet another story where Thor attacks a Jotun who tries to drown him by throwing a rock at her while he's wading through another river. As I mentioned in the last episode, Snorri tells us in his Edda that Thor is the first son of Odin, who he fathered with Jorth, a woman whose name means Earth, and who probably started out as a member of the Jotnar clan, which is the group often erroneously referred to as giants, but then came to be numbered among the Asir, the clan of the gods. But Snorri also works very hard to prove that Norse mythology is derived from Greek history and mythology. And to that end, he tells us that Thor is actually the same person as Hector of Troy, who was killed by Achilles. It's important to realize that Snorri is really leaning into medieval scholarly techniques on this, and in reality, Norse mythology is not derived from the Greek tradition, and it wasn't brought to Scandinavia by a tribe of nomadic wizards and heroes, as Snorri asserts. 
The reason it shares some similarities with the Greek tradition is that both are descended from a common Indo-European ancestor religion. If we want to equate Thor with somebody in the Greek tradition, we'd actually be a lot closer with either Zeus or Heracles. But the point is that in Snorri's Edda, we get two kinds of material. One, we get mythological stories, and two, we get Snorri's explanations of those stories. And that's where we need to be a little more careful. Here's a great example of how Snorri explains Thor. Quote, He was brought up in Thrace by a duke whose name was Loricus. When he was ten, he inherited his father's weapons. He was as beautiful to look at when he came among other people as when ivory is inlaid in oak. His hair is more beautiful than gold. When he was twelve, he had reached his full strength. Then he lifted from the ground ten bearskins all at once, and then he killed his foster father Loricus and his wife Laura or Glora and took possession of the realm of Thrace. We call this Thruthheim. Then he traveled through many countries and explored all quarters of the world and defeated unaided all berserks and giants and one of the greatest dragons and many wild animals." End quote. So here, Snorri gives us a physical description of Thor and also a few quick anecdotes about some of his young accomplishments. But I have absolutely no idea where he's getting some of this other information. For example, the part about lifting 10 bearskins at the age of 12 and killing his foster father to take control of Thrace. So the question becomes, did the Norse people actually apply any of this to Thor? Or is all of it just a hodgepodge of impressive deeds that Snorri pulled from the Greek tradition and decided for some reason would fit well here in the context of Thor. In this same section of explanatory text, Snorri notes that his version of a historical Thor married a woman the Norse call Siv, which is a point that clearly is informed by the pagan poetic sources. But then he immediately goes on to name Odin as Thor's 16th great-grandson which is contradictory to what he's told us about the mythological Thor, who is Odin's son. So when we read Snorri's Edda, it's important to keep his intent in mind at all times before accepting any given claim he might be making about anything. With that said, Snorri mentioned that Thor was as beautiful to look at as oak inlaid with ivory, with hair more beautiful than gold. It's worth noting that the word falks translates to beautiful here is fagr, which means literally fair, and it's used in almost the exact same way that fair was used in old-fashioned English. For instance, in the classic rhyme from Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? It's a word that implies beauty, either from lightness or from brightness. But this is one of the most detailed physical descriptions of Thor you can find anywhere in the source material. And even though it occurs within a mishmash of fake historical information, it does fit the way the Norse people pretty much always describe epic heroes. On the subject of Thor's allegedly, quote, fairer than gold hair, you may be aware that most descriptions of Thor outside of Marvel tend to show him with red hair, which is probably correct. Thor's hair color is not explicitly named in either of the Eddas, and you might be tempted to assume Snorri implies blonde here by comparing it to gold. However, philologist Jackson Crawford believes that in a case like this one, Fogger is probably used as a reference to the hair's luster and not its hue. Plus, what you'll discover as you read through the sources is that whenever gold is described, it's always described as being red. In fact, 
describing gold as red is actually a pretty common thing to do in a lot of old Germanic languages. That may seem kind of weird at first, but it turns out that human languages tend to develop color terminology following a near-universal pattern that can be described in stages. The earliest stages have very few color words, and they describe color in terms of categories, like light and warm versus dark and cool. And then in later stages, there are more distinct color words. But in the case of Old Norse, gold is often described as red because it falls into that warmer category, and the language is old enough that it hasn't yet developed a unique word for yellow that its speakers feel works well in the context of talking about gold although they do have some different words for describing blonde hair. Red, the Old Norse word is rauder, also very clearly does mean red. There are phrases like rauder sem blod, for example, which means red as blood. And it's not a word we see in Old Norse sources used to describe blonde hair. So when Thor appears in a dream to a Christian convert in Floamana Saga as big and red-bearded, and when a pagan says to his Christian companions in Eric's Saga Ralva that Redbeard has gotten the better of your Christ in a reference to Thor, and when visual depictions of St. Olaf in Norway begin actually showing him with red hair and a red beard after the year 1200, whereas before he had been clean-shaven, because folk belief has now started viewing him as an enormously strong and quick-tempered giant slayer, and when Jacob Grimm records a North Frisian curse that means let red-haired thunder see to that, this all seems like a pretty solid pile of evidence that Thor was pretty well thought of as a redhead with a red beard in a pretty pan-Germanic sense. Now, the internet was in a tizzy not too long ago, when the first images of Thor were released for the video game God of War Ragnarok. These images portrayed a more, shall we say, rotund Thor, which caused a lot of people to start arguing about whether or not this depiction actually matched the sources. The truth is, the sources don't describe Thor's weight at all. They do describe him eating enormous amounts of food, sometimes, such as the time he attended a wedding in the poem Thrymskvida and ate one whole ox, ate salmon, and all the dainties meant for the women, and drank three full casks of mead. But it's also worth noting that Thor seems to feast less frequently than the other gods. For instance, he's absent from the feast that serves as the setting for the poem Lokasena because he is busy hunting Jotnar in the east. He's also a god. So we can't really say for sure that food is going to have exactly the same effect on his body as it would have on ours. Ultimately, Thor is powerful and likely handsome due to the fact that he's a heroic figure. But this doesn't make it impossible for him to be a little rounder. What's not in question, in terms of the last bit of physical information we have on Thor, are his eyes. We don't ever learn what color they are specifically, but they are always described as remarkably fierce. The poem Thrymskvida, again, has the thirst Thrymir, saying that it seems to him that fire is burning from Thor's eyes. It's an intimidating picture, to say the least, this enormous and powerful man with these eyes that may have either some kind of literal fire coming out of them in his anger or at least are so intense that they might as well. But the idea of Thor is more than just his physical appearance. He has a few really important possessions that are worth mentioning here as well. Snorri tells us that he rides in a chariot pulled by two goats named Tangnjostr and Tangrisnir, which translate to something like Teeth Nasher and Teeth Bearer. 
In fact, in a lot of modern Scandinavian folklore, the sound of thunder is actually said to be created by the wheels of Thor's chariot as he drives it. The association of Thor with goats seems to tie him to farming to some degree as well, and in fact, the idea of owning two goats is used in stanza 36 of the poem Havamal to denote the living conditions of a poor farmer. It says, quote, A farm of your own is better, even if small. Everyone's someone at home. Though he has two goats and a twig-roofed room, that is still better than begging, end quote. In the poem Harbarthsljöth, Odin takes on the disguise of a ferryman and makes fun of Thor exactly along these lines. In stanza six, he says, quote, It doesn't look as if you own three decent farms. Bare-legged you stand, wearing your beggar's gear. You don't even have breeches, end quote. But even if Thor might take on a modest, bare-legged appearance at times, maybe because he's always wading across rivers, he actually does have pretty impressive living conditions. Snorri explains, and the poem Grimnismal confirms, that Thor's hall, called Bilskirnir, is the greatest of all the halls owned by the gods, with 540 rooms in all, or possibly 640 if you more strictly convert the concept of a Norse hundred to a modern English hundred. Snorri calls it the biggest dwelling ever built. Bilskirnir seems at face value to mean something like momentary bright one, which looks like it could be a reference to lightning. However, Declan Taggart notes that there are other possible translations. If we assume the name is composed of some more archaic roots, for example, we can end up with something more like preventer of failure or defier of ruin. Whatever it means, Bilskirnir is located within or near Osgarther in an area called Thrudvangar, meaning strength fields, if you go by Snorri's information, or Thrudheim, meaning strength home or strength realm, if you go by the poem Grimnismal. Snorri also tells us that Thor possesses three special items he uses when fighting. One is the hammer Mjolnir, well known to all sorts of Jotnar as it has crushed in many of their kinsmen's skulls. I won't dig into Mjolnir too much here, since I can easily make at least one entire episode on it, and probably will, but for now, suffice it to say that the sources never list Mjolnir as having any powers related to lightning or thunder, and never describe its weight, or provide any limitations on who can or can't use it. There's no worthiness factor like we get in the Marvel Universe, for example. As far as we know, Thor is still Thor even without it although it does grant him a few specific powers, and when it gets stolen at one point, the gods do become afraid that it will allow the Jotnar to overrun Osgarther. Mjolnir gives its user the power to strike an object as heavily as they want to strike. It always hits its target when thrown, and it returns to your hand after being thrown as well. We also see Thor using this hammer to consecrate a funeral pyre, and even to resurrect goats at one point. It's possible that the word Mjolnir was adopted early on from an old Slavic word that looks pretty similar and means lightning. But if so, there's a good chance that meaning would have been lost on the vast majority of Old Norse speakers, so we still can't really say that they thought of it as being connected to lightning. There are other possible etymologies as well, and we just don't have any real consensus as of now about where the word came from. But Mjolnir is attested in several of our poetic sources, and archaeologists have uncovered tons of Mjolnir pendants that would have been worn almost like Christian crosses from sites all across Viking Age Scandinavia. Snorri also gives Thor a belt he calls a Megingjörð, meaning a girdle of might, in which he says doubles Thor's godly strength when he wears it. 
Snorri doesn't seem to have invented this idea, as there is a 10th century poem called Thorstrapa that refers to Thor with phrases like the belt familiar one and the user of the strength belt. But it's worth noting that the actual belt doesn't seem to show up anywhere in the Poetic Edda or any other pagan period sources. Lastly, Snorri gives Thor a set of iron gloves he calls both Jarnglovar and Jarngreper. These words just mean iron gloves and iron grippers. Snorri claims that Thor, quote, must not be without these against the hammer shaft, end quote. But I would just like to point out that these gloves only show up in a single story. And in that story, Thor doesn't even have his hammer with him. It's kind of the point of the story. What happens is that the gloves are given to him in that story by another character early on as a plot voucher that later allows him to catch and throw a glowing hot metal ingot. It's worth emphasizing that these gloves are not mentioned anywhere else, not when the hammer is created or when it is first given to Thor and explained to him, not in any instance of him actually using the hammer, and not when any other characters steal it or inherit it. There are a couple of theories about why Snorri might have said Thor needs these gloves, but my personal favorite is that he doesn't need them at all. My guess is that they were probably just useful in this one story, but ended up becoming something like a fairy tale tradition among Christians by the 13th century when Snorri was writing. Being Odin's son gives Thor a pretty big list of siblings, or at least half-siblings, including, but not limited to, Baldr, Hodr, Vali, and Vidar, all characters we'll talk more about later. There are some other characters listed as Odin's sons too, but there's also some conflicting information about most of them. The god Loki, however, is not Thor's brother, or Odin's adopted son, or anything like that. Thor is married to a goddess named Siv, who has hair made of literal gold that was crafted for her by dwarves after Loki cut off her natural hair. She gave birth to the god Ullr at some point before she married Thor, but the two of them have a daughter together named Thruther, who Snorri names as one of the Valkyries, women who shepherd those who die in battle to Odin's hall. Thor also has two sons, named Mothi and Magni, but at least one of them, Magni in particular, is not the son of Siv, but the son of a Jotun woman named Jorinsaxa, which means something like the one with an iron knife. We're never told whether Mothi is the son of Sif or Jorinsaxa. Mothi means anger, Magni means something like empowerment, and Thruder means strength. More interestingly, Thor has two bond servants. Not quite slaves exactly, according to Snorri. A brother and a sister named Thjolvi and Roskva, who are the children of a farmer and whose names are really hard to decipher. The quick version of the story is that Thor and Loki once stayed overnight at the farmer's house while on a journey, and at dinner time, Thor slaughtered both of his goats for everyone to eat. He made it clear, however, that the goat's bones were off limits, but Thjolvi secretly split one open to get at the marrow inside. In the morning, Thor used the magical power of his hammer to resurrect the goats, but one of them was lame because Thjolvi had damaged one of the bones. As a way of making things right, and to avoid being murdered by an angry Thor, the farmer gave Thjolvi and Roskva to Thor as servants. Roskva sort of drops out of the story after this point, but Thjolvi shows up as a useful and faithful companion to Thor in various other places, including in some of the poetic sources. In reality, he becomes something more like a really good sidekick than anything else. Interestingly, and this is a little bit of a crazy theory for you, 
There is one story in the Poetic Edda called Alvismol, wherein a dwarf named Alvis, literally all-wise, comes to Thor to collect a bride, whose name is never mentioned, that he claims was promised to him while Thor was absent. He claims that pledges were made that shouldn't be broken, but Thor replies that he fully intends to break those pledges because, quote, Ek brudar o flest of rath sem fadir, which, as I understand it, could mean either of two things. It could mean either, I have the foremost right over the bride as father, in which case the girl would be Thor's daughter, Thruder, or it could mean, I have the foremost right over the bride like a father, in which case the girl could just as easily be Thor's bondmaid, Roskva. But this is a great lead into my next point about Thor, which is this. At some point in the past, someone came up with the idea that Thor is some kind of a meathead, a big, strong dummy. And this has been repeated to no end. But personally, I don't think the sources support this kind of characterization at all. Thor is certainly big and strong. Snorri tells us that he is the strongest of all the gods and men and that he can overcome all living things. But I challenge you to find anything unintelligent that Thor ever does in any story that survives. To be clear, there is a story where Thor falls for a bunch of trickery put on by a Jotun calling himself Skrymir. However, in that same story, Loki, a character who we often consider to be extremely clever, also falls for all of the same tricks. There's also a poem called Harbarsljod, which I mentioned earlier, where Thor and Odin engage in an insult battle. And in Larrington's intro to this poem, she states, quote, So slow-witted is Thor that Odin emerges a clear winner, end quote. I think this analysis might be based on the fact that Thor seems like he would rather fight Odin physically than fight him with insults, but it's also worth noting that some of Odin's own attacks aren't particularly clever here, things like, I think your mom's dead, and I think your wife's cheating on you, even though that last one is actually true. But in any case, losing an insult battle to the man that Vothrudnismal calls the wisest of beings hardly makes one a dummy. Getting back to Alvismol, where the dwarf comes demanding a bride from Thor, Thor ends up solving the problem specifically by being clever and completely without violence. The dwarf, whose name, as I said, means all-wise, is happy to show off how much knowledge he has. So what Thor does is agree to consent to the marriage if Alvis can answer all of his questions about the words that different clans of beings use for different things. He cleverly keeps Alvis talking all night long until the sun rises and light pours in upon Alvis. At this point, Thor declares how he has just beaten the dwarf and the poem ends. We aren't sure exactly why sunlight is a problem for Alvis, but we usually assume it either forces him to leave for some reason or possibly turns him into stone, as we do have some attestations of sunlight turning other supernatural creatures into stone in other places. Snorri also gives us some really cool insights into the nuances of Thor's personality. This is all Snorri, of course. But after Thjalfi maims his goat, Thor becomes extremely angry. I imagine this huge, muscular man with fire maybe burning out of his eyes, like Thrymir describes, bearing down upon this farmer's family. And then Snorri says, quote, And when he saw their terror, then his wrath left him, and he calmed down, end quote which I think is a really cool illustration of self-restraint born from empathy. He realizes he's made these people afraid, and it causes him to let go of his anger. Later, when Thor, Loki, Thjalvi, and Roskva are all in the woods together in Jotunheimr, and they start hearing some loud, terrifying noises, 
everyone gets scared and runs into what they believe is a cave to hide, but quote, Thor positioned himself in the doorway and the others were further in behind him and they were fearful, but Thor clasped the shaft of his hammer and planned to defend himself, end quote. So here, the phrasing does say that Thor plans to defend himself, but it's worth noticing how he positions himself between his companions and this unknown scariness. To me, it's another great anecdote showing a protective nature. We also have some more cool examples of Thor exercising self-restraint. In a story where he goes fishing with a Jotun called Hymir, Hymir is saying a lot of things that are really bothering Thor, and he gets angry enough that he's just on the verge of smashing Hymir with Mjolnir, but he chooses to hold back because he needs Hymir to help him get out to the place where he believes he will be able to go fishing and actually catch the giant serpent encircling the world. So this is another instance of Thor exercising his brain over brawn. One last example is where Thor is at the funeral of the god Baldr, whose body is being placed in a ship, and a Jotun woman is called in to launch the ship into the sea. Thor gets angry with this woman and is about to, quote, smash her head until all the gods begged for grace for her, end quote. So in this case, we see some more self-restraint, this time inspired by the pleas of others. Thor is also the only god who is attested as exhibiting anything like what we would call good fatherly behavior. That's not to say the other gods are attested as being bad fathers, just that we only have this kind of information on Thor. After he wins a fight with a Jotun called Hrungnir, he ends up on the ground, stuck beneath Hrungnir's leg. Thor's three-year-old son Magni shows up at this point and throws Hrungnir's leg off of his father, and Snorri tells us, quote, Then Thor stood up and welcomed his son warmly, and said he would grow up to be a powerful person. And I have decided, he said, to give you the horse Gulfoxy, which used to be Hrungnir's. End quote. So here we see Thor being proud of his son and rewarding his accomplishments. When I was a kid, my favorite hero was always Superman. I know a lot of people think Superman is boring because he's too powerful. But what I loved about Superman was that he stood for goodness and he always won. At least in the old Christopher Reeve movies. I'm not much of a comic book guy. Thor, to me, is the Norse Superman. The value system he works in may be a little different than our value system today, but it's the same thing conceptually. Thor stands for good in the Norse mindset, and he always wins. Which brings me back to the prayer I recited at the beginning of this episode. I mentioned in the last episode that in most stories, Thor is not present in Osgarther because he's out in the east hunting Jotnar. But why is this such an important mission for him? given that his mother, one of his lovers, and his grandmother on his father's side all come from the Jotnar clan. Is it because he's just some genocidal maniac? Well, no, it's not. The prayer I recited at the beginning of this episode is called the Canterbury Charm. It's in Old Norse, was written in runes, but was discovered scrawled into the margins of an Anglo-Saxon manuscript from 1073 AD. It translates to the following in English, in my own translation. Geralt, Sorkazer, leave now. You are found. May Thor use his divine power upon you, Lord of Thorsar, Geralt, Sorkazer, against blood vessel pus. End quote. Keep in mind that words like Jotnar and Thorsar, which was used here, are pretty well interchangeable. We can compare this to another find from Sweden called the Kvinnaby Amulet, which is a little trickier to decipher. There are a lot of translations that all differ from each other in various ways, so I won't attempt a word-for-word -word translation here, 
But the general idea we get from it is that something is wrong with a person called Bovi, and Thor is called upon to protect him with his hammer, at which point an evil being of some kind is called upon to leave Bovi so that his affliction can be removed. What we learn from bits of evidence like this is that the existence of Jotnar was one way the ancient Norse explained the origin of diseases, and maybe even other afflictions that befell them. If you have blood poisoning, for example, it's because a Jotun, called a Thurs in the case of the Canterbury charm, is attacking you. And if a Jotun is attacking you, how do you fix that? By invoking Thor and his hammer. So the best explanation I can give you for why Thor is always out hunting Jotnar is because he is dutifully out answering the prayers of people with afflictions all the time. He's the Norse Superman, a hero and a savior of humanity. And in fact, it's not only humans that interact with Thor in this way. The story where Thor fights Hrungnir begins with Thor out in the east, quote, beating trolls, as per usual. And while he's gone, Odin and Hrungnir engage in a horse race from Jotunheimr to Osgarther, which Odin wins because he's riding Sleipnir. When the race ends, Hrungnir is served ale as a guest, but he gets drunk and starts boasting about how he's going to destroy Osgarther and kill all of the gods and kidnap some of the goddesses to take home with him. And then Snorri says, quote, And when the Asir got tired of his boasting, they invoked the name of Thor. Immediately Thor entered the hall with hammer raised up, end quote. So Thor has this godly ability to immediately arrive whenever his name is invoked, which also happens in the poem Lokasena. Weirdly, as I've mentioned before, Thor doesn't often save the day with any thunder and lightning powers. His name means thunder, and some secondary sources have said things about how the Norse people have a god who rules over wind and rain. But as I've mentioned before, Thor never directly causes any thunder or lightning in either of the Eddas. The closest thing we get is here in the story where Thor fights Hrungnir. As the battle begins, Snorri says that Hrungnir saw lightning and heard thunder, but this could just as easily have been a description of epic battle scenery since Thor isn't actually described as having caused it. Earlier, I mentioned that Thor could easily be thought of as a god of the sea. In Floamanasaga, where Thor was described as big and red-bearded, he appears to a Christian convert being upset about the conversion and threatens him that his upcoming journey won't go well. The saga says, quote, He led him to a cliff and showed him great waves breaking over the rocks, saying, Into such rough seas shall you come and never be delivered from them unless you turn to me. End quote. In Eric's saga Ralva, Thor is said to have stranded a whale on the shores of Vineland in response to the prayers of an explorer named Thoral. In response, Thoral boasts to his Christian companions, quote, Redbeard has gotten the better of your Christ. I have done this by my poetry, which I made about Thor, in whom men trust, end quote. One great example comes from the Icelandic Landnamabók that describes a character named Helgi the Lean as being very mixed in his religion. Helgi, quote, believed in Christ, but called upon Thor in seafaring, end quote. There's also some poetry quoted in Jarl's saga that talks about Thor stirring up the storms that shattered the ship of a Christian missionary. So maybe it's possible that Thor's power over the sea is really an extension over some power he does have over the weather. In terms of why he's always wading across rivers, Terran Wills notes that whereas crossing a river doesn't sound like a very big deal in modern times because we have bridges everywhere, it was an enormous and dangerous task for ancient people. 
He suggests that just as Thor was called upon for safety in seafaring, he was probably also the obvious god to call upon for safety in crossing rivers as well. Probably because of this weird, unsupported idea that Thor is nothing but anger and muscle, he often doesn't get as much attention as other figures like Odin and Loki, maybe because people think he's not as nuanced. But if we want to know what Thor meant to ancient Norse people, it's important to note that the most common apotropaic symbol we find carried by the common person is Thor's hammer. He was clearly a protective force that was called upon in some of the most dangerous situations in life. But just as importantly, when you catch a fatal disease, or when you are beset by the powers of some evil Jotun, Thor is the one who will save you. There's a quote that I love from Horbarðsljóð, where Odin takes on the form of a ferryman called Horbarðr and engages in an insult battle with Thor. Larrington declares Odin the winner of this battle, but... As someone with a vested interest in my own survival, it's hard to beat this quote by Thor. Quote, I was in the east, and I fought against giants, malicious women who roamed in the mountains. Great would be the giant race if they all survived. There'd be no humans within Midgard. What were you doing, meanwhile, Harbard? End quote. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Thor's character. We touched very quickly on a lot of different stories in this episode and hit a lot of points just at surface level for the sake of time. But we'll have plenty of time to dig deeper into these things in the future, so make sure not to miss out on the next episode of Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Blaker, Guler, and the Categorization of Color in Old Norse by Jackson Crawford, 2016. Gods and Myths of Northern Europe by H.R. Ellis Davidson, 1964. How Thor Lost His Thunder by Declan Taggart, 2017. Medieval Folklore, A Guide to Myths, Legends, Tales, Beliefs, and Customs by Carl Lindahl, John McNamara, and John Lindau, 2002. Teutonic Mythology by Jacob Grimm, 1882, translated by James Stallybrass. Thor and Waiting by Taryn Wills, 2017. The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014. And The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.